Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we saw the last evacuation planes and troops leave Afghanistan, ending the longest war America has been involved in. There are still some Americans and Afghans that remain there, but their evacuation will no longer be a Pentagon mission. It will now be a diplomatic mission. In the end, after 20 years, the U.S. failed to defeat the Taliban, establish a functioning democracy, and stop ISIS extremists. What happens next is still unclear as we need to resettle thousands of Afghans and see what kind of government is formed by the Taliban. For more on the end of America's presence in Afghanistan, we'll speak to Ishan Tharoor, foreign affairs columnist at the Washington Post. Well, yes, it's, it's come amid these really harrowing scenes we've seen over the past couple of weeks um, with you know, countless Afghan civilians and others trying to get to Kabul airport, which the United States and some of its allies had control over. Now, uh, we've seen, we're seeing as we speak, uh, footage of of Taliban fighters walking through the hangars of this airport, uh, commandeering some U.S. vehicles that have been left there. Uh, it's all highly symbolic. It's all uh, incredibly sad if you're somebody who was invested in this 20-year effort to stabilize Afghanistan, roll back Taliban, and uh, set up some kind of functional democratic fledgling republic there. Uh, of course, this, there, there's no actual end to this conflict. Uh, the U.S. will remain engaged in various other ways, uh, including, uh, we imagine, um, various sorts of clandestine counterterrorism operations against this Islamic State outfit that's already uh, operating in Afghanistan and carried out that deadly attack last week. So it, it, it's a symbolic end, but it of course, there's a lot that's still going to keep on going. Definitely. Especially, as I mentioned, you know, if the State Department is still going to be working to try to get the last remaining few people out of there, there's going to be some type of presence there eventually. And you mentioned, you know, the Taliban walking through trying to commandeer whatever's left there. You know, the General McKenzie, he did say that they either destroyed or decommissioned whatever that they had left there, you know, in the hopes that they wouldn't be able to reuse any of that. But, Sean, tell me a little bit more about the failures basically that happened there because 20 years ago we did go in there to Afghanistan, took down the Taliban government, but in the end they're back. We failed to defeat them. And as you were talking about the rise of ISIS-K, all this other stuff, we didn't really do the job that we set out to do on that front of it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a, there's this kind of fascinating thing happening in the United States right now when we talk about what's happening in Afghanistan, uh, especially here in Washington where I'm sitting, uh, where uh, a whole bunch of very prominent people who have a long history uh, in, in, insofar as managing these conflicts are criticizing this administration for its uh, for its decision to withdraw. It's criticizing this administration for for not being flexible enough to remain and, and maintain this military footprint. While at the same time, there's less of a conversation uh, about all the years. Uh, in the in the past that have led, led us to this moment, all the many mistakes. And so what am I talking about? I'm talking about um, uh, a military occupation uh, run by the United States that saw quite a few uh, Afghan civilian casualties and airstrikes 
and other sorts of actions. I'm talking about uh, a culture of uh, aid, especially um, massive amounts of money that the U.S. pumped into Afghanistan that not only was siphoned off by various corrupt officials, but almost to a certain extent, and we see this in uh, a a whole host of uh, classified documents that my colleagues have reported on, uh, that in and of itself created a culture of corruption and fecklessness within the Afghan state. There was just so much money sloshing around that people did not know what to do with. So there's a failed state-building project. And of course, what we've seen in the last few months is this complete collapse of an Afghan military that the United States invested so much time and energy in training and equipping. Uh, and, and that raises a lot of questions, uh, not just about you know, the nature of American confidence in what they were doing, but also uh, understanding of the situation and what makes uh, Afghan society and Afghan government click and work. And, and what we saw was a lot of uh, deals, a lot of uh, kind of quiet deals that happened between local Afghan forces and Taliban, uh, a widespread lack of uh, uh, morale, a widespread lack of trust in the central government the United States had trusted, had propped up for so long. But also that was compounded by American mistakes in their own dealing with uh, Kabul and also this whole process of negotiations with the Taliban right. that many argue happened way too late. And so what happens now going forward? Obviously, the credibility of the U.S. is damaged there, especially in that region, but with some of our allies as well. And then what happens with the Taliban now? They have to set up a government. Who knows how they'll operate with other countries? You know, these are all the next steps to look out for. I would caution against talking so broadly about American credibility being damaged. I think uh, there are a lot of people in Afghanistan who wanted the Americans to go. Uh, There are a lot of people there who... Uh, even if they don't like Taliban, were not particularly pleased by the way in which uh, you know they were function- operating in a country uh, controlled by uh, a government that's propped up by the U.S. that was feckless and quite weak in many ways. So, and then I think more broadly speaking, going forward, yes, we will see uh, the U.S. remain engaged to a certain extent in trying to help broker whatever the the post-Taliban takeover political situation looks like, there are talks happening between Taliban officials and other Afghan figures who are still in Kabul over some kind of uh, interim government, at least. Uh, Obviously, the the Taliban will have a much bigger role and a much bigger seat at the table than the Americans would like, but that can't necessarily be helped at this point. I I think more broadly, and what Americans kind of have to sit with to a certain extent, is that the legacy of these 20 years is one that really calls into question some of the the delusions and belief in American power on the world stage. The U.S. did a hell of a lot in trying to develop uh, think, uh, infrastructure in Afghanistan, trying to build democracy there, and in trying to fight this war. And it, you know, it invested a lot of blood and, and a lot of a lot of treasure. It lost a lot of lives. It participated in a conflict that led to a lot of death for Afghan civilians. And yet, what does it have to show for it? On the way out, American officials were burning American flags in the U.S. embassy to make sure that these American flags didn't fall into Taliban hands. And that seems to me quite quite a bleak metaphor for 20 years of uh, investment in that country. so it's the Biden administration, though, is making a different bet. They're, 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 they believe that 
uh, it's time to get out. And they were they stuck to the deadline, which was today. Uh, and they've pulled out and they believe that the U.S.'s influence on the world stage is not defined by uh, these kind of counterinsurgency operations in far, far flung parts of the world, but rather a more kind of robust uh, challenge to China, perhaps. Also a greater emphasis on rebuilding, on nation building at home. And so, so the dynamic uh, there will remain, uh, will be one that's going to be contested a lot in Washington in the days to come. You know, finally, obviously, the political toll on the administration with all of this, right? I mean, there's going to be investigations into why we didn't pull out faster. I mean, not pull out faster, but uh, start evacuating Americans and Afghans earlier. That's also one of the next steps, too, the political damage that the administration is going to suffer because of all this. That's definitely there. And I think uh, you're going to have a lot of uh, Benghazi redux, perhaps, from Republicans uh, in in Congress. Uh, I think they're banking on the fact that polls show, at least have shown up to late, that most Americans support ending the war uh, in Afghanistan uh, and that most Americans uh, uh, support, uh, you know, drawing down uh, the American military footprint overseas in general. Uh, I think what's going to happen now is a rather ugly set of factors. It's important to remember that the situation in Afghanistan is really fragile, and there's a, a looming humanitarian crisis, a looming economic crisis in the country, uh, and you're going to see various flows of refugees continuing, even though the U.S. isn't evacuating anyone anymore. And so the focus, I mean, in, in some places, already or has already turned to this, but there'll be a pretty nasty partisan fight over refugees, probably, and there'll be a pretty nasty partisan fight over you know, what the legacy of this whole war is. And, and, and the tragedy of that is that it shouldn't be partisan. Both Democrats and Republicans should own it because they both participated in this 20-year conflict. Ishan Tharoor, foreign affairs columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. On the science and technology front, we're seeing a new generation of companies make big strides in the science of smell. And a device that looks like a big purple nipple could be the digital nose of the future. This device will be used by Anheuser-Busch to measure how beverages' aromatic notes are perceived and try to enhance flavors. And it will also be used with a different company to detect traces of marijuana on people suspected of driving under the influence. For more on this device trying to replicate our sense of smell, we'll speak to Zach Schonbrunn, contributor at Bloomberg Businessweek. It has been one of the one of the challenges, the stickiest challenges in technology is designing a sensor that can, you know, effectively replicate the versatility and, uh, you know, robustness and stability of of the human nose. You know, we have sensors, as you said, that can recognize our faces and, you know, feel our touch or, you know, recognize our voices. But smell has been it's been a challenge. And, um, you know, it's it's not been something that, uh, you know, there was a lot of energy around this this pursuit um, of building an electronic nose or a smell sensor in the 90s. A bunch of companies got a lot of attention uh, for their more chemical-based uh, detectors that um, were, were, you know, were somewhat effective, but, um, you know, certainly had limitations uh, and, and in, you know, what they could be used for. 
um, with uh, with smell detection, and so they kind of just faded away. And um, but you know, but lately there is uh, there's been a lot of new energy. Technology has has obviously advanced. Some of the biotechnology um, in particular has advanced and in incorporating more biological processes and biologically based systems into electronics and technology has kind of enabled a handful of, of new companies to emerge and, and they feel like they've kind of cracked it. So my, my story, uh, I tried to apply a good amount of skepticism into it because knowing you know how much of a challenge it has been, but there's reason to think that a few of these companies have gotten further along than others in the past. Let's talk about the first one, the giant purple nipple, just because it's an interesting <laughs> device. Uh, it's made by a company called Konaku. The device itself is called Konicore, and it's a, a like a purple bubble thing. But uh, it has it's. I think they're going to be putting it up in some airports pretty soon. It's interesting. It, it uh, even has some living nerve cells inside of the device to help with sensing smell. So tell us about that device and then the practicality of it. Right? I, I mean, I'm sorry. They have a they have a deal with Anheuser Busch. So uh, mm-hmm. t- uh, tell us the practicality of it. What are they going to be using it for? So Konicu is, is kind of the furthest furthest along in this. Um, you know, what they have done is they figured out a way to actually use uh, living nerve cells, uh, the neurons that uh, we would that we have in uh, oh way high up in our in our nasal cavity uh, that act as the receptors. You know, uh, when we sniff something or an odor passes across our faces and up our nose, um, you know, those receptors are are what transmit that information to our brain. And so Conico has really hijacked that that system. They ha- and they've been able to do it using you know real human. Uh, nerve cells uh, that are programmed to um, pick up on on odors just as just as our nose would and but instead of uh, transmitting that information to a brain you know they figured out a way to transmit it to a chip uh, or a you know a computer and recognize odors that way and so that's kind of the basis uh, around you know what they've done it, it's it's uh, you know the the I suppose the closest to replicating you know how biology works for for us and, and other mammals and uh, in the nose um, you know there are limitations uh, to to what they can do with it as well but um, you know they feel like their um, their device is is portable um, you know it, it uh, it's it's not overly huge. Uh, you know, it can hang on a wall. And as you mentioned, it's going, they have a partnership with Airbus that's going to have these things start to appear in, uh, in airport terminals that are programmed to pick up on explosives. And they've done, uh, you know, traces of explosives. They did testing last year uh, with the FBI and a uh, police unit actually in Mobile, Alabama, where they found that the devices were more accurate in picking up on the traces of explosives than um, trained bomb-sniffing dogs. So they're starting to uh, roll out these devices in, in airport terminals, and so that's one application that they're working on. The other, as you mentioned, is uh, in the food and beverage space with uh, with Anheuser Busch, um, testing you know various products, trying to understand uh, you know how flavor notes and uh, odors from uh, you know various beverages, kind of how how our odors, how our noses respond to different notes and, and hints of odors in, in different beverages. So that's kind of interesting in the in the food and beverage space, and then they're also working with uh, Thermo Fisher, um, the uh, the sensor giant, on building a device that can pick up on traces of marijuana. 
Uh, and so the idea is to have uh, the Conicor um, start to get filtered out into police stations and police vehicles so that they can do more accurate roadside testing of um, you know, people suspected of of, uh, of driving while under the influence of, of marijuana. So kind of three very different pursuits, and I think right. that speaks to just the versatility of, of the device and what they've been able to achieve. You laid those out very well, you know, improving taste, uh, picking up on all those different things, but even helping to detect illness has been a thing that uh, scientists have been working with smell for a long time. They know that they can pick up, you know, if people have certain diseases or illnesses, based off of the way they smell through their sweat, through their breath, all that stuff. So these devices and these companies that are working on this stuff also are looking into that, especially with coronavirus right now going on. There was all sorts of stories about dogs being able to sniff things out like that. We generally just don't give enough credit to what our noses are are capable of. We don't, you know, we, we don't pay enough attention. Uh, we don't really have much need to pay attention to what our noses can do. But, you know, people who are trained uh, to use their noses, think of sommeliers and, you know, flavorists and, and things like that, they, they can be pretty remarkable about what they can do with their noses. And there's evidence that, you know, certain diseases give off, uh, you know, have odorous qualities as well. Um, you know, what, what's actually going on here is the, you know, the, the biological breakdown of, you know, when a disease affects cells, it gives off uh, what are called VOCs, volatile organic compounds. Um, that's what the dogs are, are picking up on. They get, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of ejected from our body in sweat and in breath. Um, so figuring out a device that can pick up on these VOCs the way that a dog's nose can is, uh, is yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly of, of interest, and, and definitely there's more interest and urgency, as you mentioned now, because we're, we're much more aware and, and conscious and worried about what's in the air around us, um, you know, as we're living through this global pandemic. That's a direction that another company, Aromix, which is another company that I focused on in the piece, that, that's the direction that they are primarily heading, more in that diagnostic direction. Uh, you know, again, they, there are opportunities there. There are also challenges and limitations. Their system is not built around the entire nerve cell, the entire, you know, olfactory system that Conico uh, has been using. They focus on, they've been able to uh, achieve a way to use, use the odor receptors, the, the proteins uh, that uh, bind to odors inside our nose. Um, it's not quite as developed as the, the Conico system, but they feel like it works essentially the same way. It's able to recognize odors, you know, send that signal to, uh, to a, again, a chip reader uh, and a computer and give that recognition of, of whatever it's trying to, whatever it's trying to smell. You know, the challenge there with their system is that right now they're laboratory based. So they have partnered with companies, but those companies have to send in their samples to be tested you know, into the laboratory. And so getting out of the laboratory for them, building a device that's more portable, that can sit in a doctor's office, or, you know, in their case, they would like to build something that's more like a pregnancy test or a glucose test that's a single-use biological strip or sample uh, that uh, can be kind of opened up and unsealed, recognize, you know, what VOCs it detects in the breath or in the sweat, uh, you know, give off that signal uh, and then be discarded. So that's kind of the direction that, that they're heading with their, with their company. But, yeah. um, but it's interesting. Zach, Sean Brunn, contributor to Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. 
Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.